Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. One of my biggest focuses for this podcast is to bring you treatments and drugs that may be dangerous, but which the medical establishment downplays the danger. Now, they do this in a variety of ways, usually by crafting studies that uh, don't appropriately take into consideration long-term effects. Sometimes they manipulate statistics in such a way that the dangers are downplayed. Sometimes they just don't test against the proper placebos. There's a lot of tricks that can make a treatment seem safer than it is. And the motivation to do this is usually millions, sometimes billions of dollars. Now, I want to make you aware of these treatments so you can stop and question whether they're really right for you. Now, sometimes they're worth the risk, no doubt about it. But we want to properly analyze the risks and rewards. I actually remember one time I was uh, talking to my personal doctor and she was talking about how bad pharma reps can be. Now, she's been in practice uh, for many years. She told me a vast majority of the drugs that reps would come in to teach her about just disappear after a few years. You don't really hear about that, but there are probably thousands of drugs and treatments that at one time were the best of the best, but they're just gone now without a whisper. So if you want to make good decisions, you know, we need to know about both the successes and the failures of our institutions. If we don't learn about the failures and all we see are the successes, we put more trust than we should in the institution. And that's dangerous. Now, one of those potentially dangerous treatments out there at this moment is called gadolinium. Now, gadolinium is used to make contrast dyes, which are used in MRI scans to make the images clearer and easier to read. Now, gadolinium, it's a heavy metal, which is toxic to humans. It's put into a chemical cage, which supposedly makes it safe. But there are people speaking out saying that they have been irreparably harmed after having it. Actually, Chuck Norris's wife is one of those people, and she is pushing hard for these dyes to be treated as the dangerous agents that they are. And these people, they're not making it up. You know, they often have very high levels of gadolinium in their urine, and they try all kinds of chelation therapy in an attempt to get the stuff out of them. Now, basically, how it works is you go in for an MRI, they inject you with a contrast dye, and afterwards, the doctor can read the scan much easier. You're supposed to pee out the contrast dye over the next few days to a week and go on your merry way. But maybe that isn't the case. Also, when these dyes were introduced decades ago, MRI technology did not make the clear images that it does today. So it might not even be necessary. In fact, at one point in this interview, I pressed Dr. Katrina on what kinds of scans actually need these dyes. And well, you may be surprised at her answer. So I have two guests, Dr. Katrina Walsh, she is a graduate of Cambridge and worked as a consultant pediatrician for the NHS. She has a book on contrast dyes and runs the website called The Food Phoenix. My other guest is Molly Brewer, who is a patient that was harmed by these dyes and runs the website mridye.com, which is a great source of information and education on gadolinium toxicity. So enjoy the interview. So I have a couple really special guests with me today. I have uh, Katrina Walsh, who is an author and runs the website foodphoenixco.uk, and Molly Brewer, who is a patient advocate and runs the website mridiebuy.com. Now, 
until just about a month ago, I had no idea that this even existed. You know, I, I thought MRIs were some of the safest scans you can get. So we're going to hear today about how they might not be so safe. So uh, I think uh, Katrina, she's going to kind of give us the technical details. Molly's going to give us a little bit about her experience and what she went through getting these MRIs. Uh, so ladies, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for thank having you. us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. We're doing a, uh, a three person podcast today, so there may be some, uh, stepping over each other now and then, but, uh, let's, let's dive right in. Katrina. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. What, what is going uh, how do I say this? G- uh, gadolinium, what is gadolinium based contrast agents? Yeah, sure. So, um, so basically gadolinium is an element. It's actually a, a toxic heavy metal and, in order for it, it has kind of paramagnetic properties, which means that it behaves a certain way in a large ma- magnet, um, and that makes it very interesting um, for people who arrange MRI scans because it means that it will it will show up different things in the body because of those properties. So these are used for MRI scans. They they inject these into you when you're going to get one, and it it helps the image show up. Yeah, to an extent, yeah. Yeah, it, it alters the image a bit. Um, so the gadolinium element on its own is highly toxic. Um, and if you inject it straight into somebody, it'll just kind of cause horrible, horrible toxicity um, symptoms immediately um, and will probably kill them um, fairly quickly. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really nasty thing. So they have incorporated the gadolinium into these contrast agents where, the, where you, if you think of the contrast as a sort of a cage, um, that they build around the gadolinium ion to try to make it a bit safer, then you can get away to, with an, you know to an extent um, with injecting people with the contrast and not cause quite the same amount of toxic effects. Well, I mean, that's so confusing to me that they would take something that's an element that is highly toxic and then use that as a contrast dye. I mean, how, how did they come up with this? Yeah, well, I suppose that the contrast agents have been around for maybe the last 30, 35 years or so. Um, so they basically were designed, I guess, alongside coinciding with the, the MRI technology. So in the very early um, stages, MRI, MRIs weren't anywhere near as clear as they've become now because just the, the technology has changed and the, and the different sorts of things that you can do with computers and stuff. And also the strength of the magnets um, has been able to increase so so these days you can get much, much clearer MRI images without using any contrast at all. Um, but in the early days, the MRIs um, were quite blurred. So they, they wanted to find something that would show up certain things a lot more clearly. So um, they wanted to show up things like tumours, I suppose, and they wanted to show up um, blood vessels, which can be very important for sort of funny, funny things um, where you might have malformations of, of blood vessels causing symptoms and the the contrast also you know like it picks up more um lesions that you'll find in things like multiple sclerosis and, and a few other things so so in the early days the contrast probably was a lot more useful than it's become recently but that's largely because of the way that, that uh, technology um has evolved um so that it's it's actually the the contrast now doesn't really make a huge difference to diagnosis in most cases, but that that was basically why they brought it in. It was in order to better visualize things like tumors and blood vessels 
um, and certain other lesions. So how, do you know how this heavy metal compares to like lead or cadmium in terms of toxicity? Yeah, so great question. Um, so essentially gadolinium is similar to lead in that it is um, a very potent calcium channel blocker. So, so lead um, also exerts a lot of its effects by mimicking calcium in the body. Um, and gadolinium does the same sort of thing. So gadolinium to our uh, enzymes looks extremely like um, the essential nutrient calcium, but it doesn't behave in the same way. So it will bind into men, you know, enzymes and channels and things that use calcium, but block them instead of working properly. And, and that way it's very similar to lead. And I suppose in the same way that lead then has um, a preference for things like bones and, and teeth that would be very um, high in calcium, so does, so does gadolinium. So gadolinium um, will get into bones and, and the bone will act as a, a reservoir later on in life, um, particularly as you get older and you start getting osteoporosis and your bones start to deteriorate a little bit. That can be a constant source of recurring gadolinium in your bloodstream, a bit like lead um, as people get older gets released back into the bloodstream. Wow. So you can get this stuff in your body and your body will put it into your bones and then literally you can be poisoned in an ongoing manner. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, but there, there hasn't been any kind of research looking at the long-term effects for anyone, anyone, let alone what happens after a few decades, which is probably the length of time that it would take, you know, for osteoporosis to release um, reasonable amounts back into the system. But yes, it's a real concern because bones do act as a kind of a reservoir. It's not the only place where you, you find gadolinium showing up. I mean, it gets into your brain tissue as well and into your skin and into your joints and into your liver and kidneys, um, into your eyeballs. I mean, it gets anywhere where the blood goes um, and then anywhere where calcium ends up going, which is basically all the cells in your body. But it seems to have preferences for certain, um, even certain regions of the brain um, will take up more gadolinium than other regions of the brain. So I know there's different types of these contrast agents. Uh, can you go over those and kind of what makes them different? Yeah, I mean, I suppose essentially there's there's kind of broadly two different categories. So um, the oldest ones are something called the linear agents. Um, and if you remember back to what we mentioned about the um, cage that the gadolinium is put in, in in these contrasts with yeah. the linear agents, the, the cage is a bit more open, open-sided. So that would make it possible for a bit of the, you know, for some of the gadolinium molecules to get popped out of that little cage. So it's less stable. Um, and that means that um, the gadolinium can come out of the cage and start interacting directly with, you know, processes in the body. So it's it's what they call kind of a free, free gadolinium doesn't actually stay free for any length of time because it immediately starts binding to you know enzymes and um and getting into you know like your bones and your joints and stuff now the linear agents were some of the first agents so they've been on the market much much longer and they're much better researched not that they're well researched but they are better researched than microcyclics which are much more recent um the microcyclic agents um so if you think of that cage again um, the gadolinium is more enclosed inside the cage and that makes it less likely for the gadolinium to um, come out of the cage and start acting directly on your body. But again, that doesn't mean that the gadolinium 
inside this uh, macrocyclic contrast is is much safer. Um, in fact, if you look at the neurological side effects of some of the macrocyclics like Prohance, um, you find that Prohance is one of the most um, neurotoxic of the, all the gadolinium contrast agents. Um, so there is this, theoretically, the linears would be um, more damaging to uh, to people, but, you know, with, with greater levels of toxicity due to this um, effect where the gadolinium can, can come out. But in practice, we don't really know enough about them. And certainly, um, because I see, see clients who are suffering from side effects after having the gadolinium contrast, you know, a lot of them have had some of the macrocyclic agents like Prohance or like Dotarum or like Gadavist. Um, those would be some of the, the big macrocyclic ones. And they, they have um, their side effects are just as nasty as people who have had some of the macrocyclics like I had. I had Multihance and other people have had Magnavist or Optimark. Now, OmniScan seemed to be a particularly nasty one, and that was a linear one, and that was um, associated with a lot of the side effects in renal patients that we hear about, hmm. um, because renal patients, um, the way that most of the gadolinium contrast agents are eliminated from the body is in the urine. So um, they originally they told us that don't worry about it, because if you just drink lots of fluids, you'll pee out all of the contrast in about four days, um, which w- which was never true. Um, but obviously, then, if you have a problem with your kidneys and you're not actually eliminating properly, then, you know, renal patients were were known then to retain much more gadolinium um, and run into problems. So really, they're the, the main group of patients that have been studied in any kind of detail um, is some of these renal patients who develop some extreme, extraordinarily nasty side effects from gadolinium contrasts. And most of them had received the linears initially and then you know some of them then you know had a mixture of linears and a mixture of the um, macrocyclic agents but not very many of them had had macrocyclic agents on their own but a, la- a large point of part of that was because the macrocyclics were introduced much later um you know much more recently than, than the linears so there were just there were just much more people who were getting the linear agents so these kidney patients, they can't excrete the gadolinium like it's supposed to be excreted. So what kind of things, you said that they have some really bad things happen to them. What kind of side effects do they have? Yeah, sure. So the condition that has been researched the most is something called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Um, so it's it's this kind of uh, connective tissue disorder. So it affects all of their bodies. Um but in particular, they, they have this very, very striking tightening and hardness of their skin and their joints in particular. So they, they can, um, and it tends to be very, very painful. So they, they complain of a lot of burning pain. Um, their skin breaks down. They can have a lot of very broken skin, a lot of redness, a lot of what they call plaques and hardened areas. Um, they, they often end up in wheelchairs because their joints get so so tight but it it affects you know it affects all of their tissues as well so it gets into you know into their abdomens into their lungs which can make breathing very difficult you know into their hearts and and the main cause of death with nephrogenic system or one of the the main cause of death with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis is actually cardiac problems um you know it can cause heart failure um it can cause heart arrhythmias um it can cause uh, heart attacks, you know, all sorts of things. You know, it, it just gets into into all all of their body organs and causes some pretty 
devastating and horribly painful um, side effects um, that have been very well documented. And the, the mortality rates are extremely high. Wow. I mean, so I'm guessing these side effects don't go away. They just get worse and worse until they die. Generally, I think there have been a few cases where they have improved, but it's hard to know why because, you know, there's been a little bit of research trying to um, give them various chelating agents and they haven't made a lot of difference. And I think there's been a little bit of research, you know, on using things like um, dialysis to see if if that would improve things, but it, it hadn't been very successful. So there's the odd patient with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis who has recovered, but by and large, for most people, it's been a progressive thing and very unpleasant. Hmm. So I know we're going to get on to kind of these side effects affecting people who don't have kidney problems. But before we do that, um, one other question I just wanted to ask, because I think you touched on it a little bit earlier. You know, until I learned about this, I thought MRIs were probably some of the safest scans you could get. You know, CT scans, obviously you get few hundred worth of a few hundred uh, hard x-rays worth of, of radiation and but MRIs you know with magnetic resonance it seemed very safe so you were saying earlier that you can they're, they're maybe not used for all the scans so what MRIs can you get where they won't use these and which ones are they really going to push them on well I suppose the um, the indication you know the, the studies recently haven't really shown that much of a benefit to using the contrast for nearly everything. The, they'll often use it for cancer patients, but if you look at the research um, on adults and children, um, there's no benefit compared with using the non-contrast MRI plus or minus PET scans, which use the CT. Hmm. Um, or you, yeah, at the moment they use CTs, I think they're working on PET scans that will use MRI scanners, um, but I don't think commercially that's really available at the moment. So, yeah, so so as far as things like um, cancer goes, there, there doesn't seem to be a benefit to getting the contrast, but the contrast is generally offered. Okay. A lot of facilities will use it to do something like something called MR angiograms. So, again, um, the contrast isn't actually necessary for these either. There are certain computerized technologies and certain CTs or certain MRI scanners that will give you the same um, results some sort of Im- images where you can get the diagnosis in the same way, um, but you have to have the special technology in order to to get that. So not all MRI scanners have this technology available. But yeah, I mean, you know, companies like Canon and Toshiba have both um, got technologies that will give you a non-contrast MRA, which is the magnetic resonance angiography. So it it sounds like what you're kind of saying is that no MRIs really need this contrast dye? We don't We don't know because uh, the research hasn't really been looked at in much detail. But basically, um, I think there was maybe one, you know, one type of liver cancer in, in children that maybe the contrast MRI did show up a bit more detail. Um, but for pretty much anything else that I looked at, it wasn't, it didn't seem to be that helpful because there were other ways of reaching the diagnosis. So another thing that it's used, often used for is for multiple sclerosis because the contrast will show up more lesions in the non-contrast. But having said that, the contrast in the studies where they were, um, you know, where, where they were trying to work out um, the diagnosis, the contrast didn't alter the diagnosis in any cases at all. Um, so, and they didn't, you know, there wasn't any proven benefit to seeing more lesions. 
So the non-contrast MRI showed up lesions. It just didn't show up quite as many lesions as the contrast MRI. Um, so it didn't actually alter the diagnosis. It didn't alter the management. It didn't, um, hmm. you know, alter the prognosis. In fact, probably the more, you know, there is some research suggesting that the more contrast agents, MRIs that you have with multiple sclerosis, you know, some of, some of your neuropsychiatric indicators go down a little bit, so like like your variable fluency um, can go down if you've had more contrast MRIs. Again, this is an associative thing, so you can't necessarily um, decide that it's cause and effect. Um, but it is a real concern, especially when the, the contrast MRIs don't help with anything. They don't keep you out of a wheelchair. They don't stop you from dying. They don't really alter your management. So why, why risk it? Yeah, it, it sounds like you can basically refuse these dyes you know whenever they're offered if you're getting an mri you can always refuse these there's really no case where they're going to pressure you and say we really need this uh, this dye to, to for you know a scan to show up yeah well it's interesting that you say that and i've kind of written about this a little bit in my in my book so there's a whole consent procedure that you should really be going through with your doctor where you look at what your options are um you look at the risks you look at the benefits um, if there are other um, investigations available, but they're not available in your facility, your doctor is supposed to mention that to you as well. And your doctor is not supposed to coerce you into, uh, into getting a scan done. In practice, what, what I find is that quite a lot of people have sort of said that their doctor has fired them for not for refusing the contrast. You know, like they've sort of gone, well, you know, I'm OK with, with getting the non-contrast MRI and then their doctors have fired them and they haven't been open to having, you know, like a frank discussion about the risks and benefits or they've been very dismissive of the, of the risks or sort of said, you know, that, you know, um, your kidneys are fine, you're going to be fine. Like this is all being blown out of proportion. So, I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of ethical things as far as your doctor um, refusing to treat you because you stand up for yourself and make an informed decision. Um, you know, it's not good practice, but it does seem to happen with some people. Um, and that was something that I did want to write about in the book because I wanted to, you know, make sure that people realized that um, they have the right to make their own decisions when it comes to their own body. You know, so, so long as somebody doesn't deem them incompetent, which means that they, they don't understand what's going on and they're not in a fit mental state to make their own decisions, then they can make their own decisions and they cannot be, you know, they shouldn't be coerced into making any you know any other decisions yeah i know that's a real issue that's kind of coming up in our time is the whole concept of medical consent you know it came out of the hague it came out of world war ii it's just our whole medical system is built on this concept of you know even if somebody is doing something that is going to kill them you know even if they're saying i don't want this and i'm going to die it you're supposed to be able to to say okay that's your choice you know and that's more important than saving someone's life against their will. So, I mean, that's, that's such a huge issue. So let's, let's uh, go on to, because obviously these side effects that you were mentioning before uh, with the kidney patients, these are coming up in people who uh, do not have kidney problems. So let's talk about what people experience and, and what you guys are seeing out there uh, from these dyes. So what, what are some of the side effects, the, the, you know, symptoms that people are having? Yeah, so um, pain is a huge feature. Um, everything from headaches to burning in skin, in muscles, to deep bone pain. You know, a lot of 
sort of chest pain as well, whether it's rib pain or actual lung pain and gut pain as well. And then uh, fatigue is another huge one. So people are sort of like, oh, just <laughs> where is my energy gone? So sort of chronic fatigue. And then a lot of neurological problems, things like brain fog, you know, memory loss, both short term and long term memory, um, confusion, you know, and, and mood, mood symptoms are actually um, very, very, very common, especially anxiety, like, a, you know, even having these thoughts that just jump around a lot. So, so finding it very difficult to concentrate while also being, you know, almost panicky or outright panicky um, and thoughts, you know, like jumping from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next and having these ruminations as well that go round and round and round in your head um, and just worrying about the gadolinium, feeling guilty about um, having had it. Um, so, you know, so it sort of goes beyond as a natural process of grieving, which you'd expect somebody to have. It's it's um, it's kind of like this strange pathological um, ruminations that, that just turn over and over and over. The joint problems as well are, are kind of quite similar. Um, well, there's maybe other type of joint problems. We have more poppy clicky joints as well, where, where joints maybe become a little bit less stable. Um, skin hardening, tightening, shiny skin, painful skin. Some people also, instead of the, the hardening of their skin, they actually get this lax skin. So it's like um, you've kind of aged overnight, you know, wow. and, and your your skin just starts kind of like hanging and doesn't, you know, if you stretch it, it just sort of stays there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of very, very aged. So people often say, oh, it looks like my skin is really aged and just gets so wrinkly and yeah, and, and just completely loses any kind of elasticity. What else? We get? Oh, twitching. So, so muscular problems, muscular weakness and fatigue as well, but also this kind of twitching that goes on sort of called fasciculations but is kind of an annoying little jumpy feeling underneath your your skin and your and your muscles and you can even see your muscles jumping about Ugh. yeah it's not much fun um palpitations in your heart so skip beats but also racing heartbeats um and also kind of faintness and dizziness particularly when you stand up i guess tinnitus is a really common symptom as well so that buzzing in your ears or ringing in your ears even the high shrill kind of buzzing in the ears um, also kind of a whooshing uh, tinnitus that goes in time with your heart heart rate it's sort of a pulsatile tinnitus type of thing um, visual problems as well so dry sore eyes red eyes very bloodshot and, and sort of even seeing these kind of plaques in the whites of your eyes or whatever um, and changes in your visual acuity so you can't see as clearly gut symptoms are hugely prevalent and food intolerances really come in a lot, particularly things like gluten intolerances. Um, you know, you can have new gluten intolerances as well or flare-ups of, of old food intolerances. But certainly, you know, a lot of people may or may not realise that they've got new food intolerances and that the food intolerances are actually making the symptoms of the gadolinium are much worse or are mimicking them. Or one of the ways that the gadolinium causes problems is to cause food intolerances that you know you should be addressing also things like obviously constipation reflux bloating you know even even your gut can kind of become looser because of the connective tissue in there or tighter hmm. um, and it can kind of fall down and, and um, you can get into problems with with all sorts of strange gut symptoms uh, menstrual disorders um, so quite you know some women notice that their periods just stop um, and they become infertile shortly afterwards um, or you can have just a really 
huge changes in your in, in your menstrual cycle. That was more what happened to me was um, I my my periods just went completely haywire and lasted really you know about three times as long as they should have done after my first MRI. Can you tell us about your your experience and what you went through? Because you mentioned you had this, so. Yeah, so I, well, I had it as a, a screening thing after I was diagnosed with the hypermobility, the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, because they wanted to look at my aorta. So I had a, an angiogram um, and it was completely normal, um, as it probably would have been. And I felt okay in the scanner. And then a few hours later, I started getting like a horrible headache. And I then that evening, I, I had just horrific insomnia. So that's another very common one is, is sleep issues. Um, but I sort of felt like I was switched on and I couldn't switch off. Mm. Um, you know, so everything, everything in my body just felt electrified and just very much sort of dialed up. And then over the over the next few days and weeks, I started to, to develop this kind of burning pain in um, muscle and skin, particularly muscle. And it's like that lactic acid burn that you get when you do sprints or you know, some very intense exercise whenever you kind of reach your limit and you have to stop. Mm. Except I was getting this when I was washing my hair or peeling potatoes or, you know, walking up my stairs wow. and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's like a, a just a total metabolic sort of failure type of thing. And then muscle weakness and um, a bit of shortness of breath and stuff. My blood pressure went up and I don't, you know, I tended to have kind of low blood pressure and then it sort of shot up into the high blood pressure range of things. My uh, weight started going up I started putting on about a pound of pound of weight a week a lot of people actually lose weight so um yeah a lot of people just become quite cachectic and that's you know with cancer patients where they have this yeah they waste away yeah just complete wasting a lot of people get that I didn't get that I kind of went the opposite way I started to just pile on the pounds and put on about um 11 kilograms so that's 20 something pounds in about six months and my weight had been you know stable for the previous 10 years so that was quite interesting mm. I started my legs swell up so I had this you know real pitting edema right from you know my feet right up into my thighs I sort of felt like I was developing diabetes you know I was having to run to the loo a lot after eating but but my blood sugars well I didn't have a I didn't have a postprandial blood sugar check but my blood sugars and my HbA1c were okay um, my liver function tests became a bit abnormal for a while. What else did I have? Um, I had the brain fog and I had the low mood and I had the anxiety. I had the muscle twitching, um, the palpitations. Um, despite my blood pressure being very high, I started feeling very faint again whenever I stood up and especially getting out of hot baths and stuff. In fact, I thought I was going, oh my goodness, I'm going to faint in the bath and drown. Um, wow, this is so awful. Yeah, it was not fun. It wasn't fun at all. And 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 there was nothing in the conventional medical system that would either that they could, you know, they couldn't test me for anything. They couldn't do my blood or my urine samples. Not the blood samples are actually useful. And I don't know how really useful urine samples are, given that everybody who has who's injected with gadolinium retains some of it. So you know, I don't know how useful it really is. But apart from things like, oh, look, your liver function tests are abnormal. And oh, look, your cholesterol has gone through the roof. Make sure you don't gain too much weight. <laughs> and, you know, there, just, there wasn't an awful lot that was helpful. I did get some physiotherapy that kind of um, did help. But I think probably by that stage, I'd managed to cut out a lot of the foods and start onto a lot of supplements and stuff that helped me to actually tolerate the physio. Oh yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Had to had to learn how to tape my joints together as well as well with kinesio tape because my knees were popping out so much 
um, just just anything to hold myself together. Wow. <laughs> you mentioned earlier uh, women's issues. Is there any indication that it might affect women more than men or vice versa? Um, I have a mixture of male and female clients. I would say that the thing that I've noticed as common denominators are um, people who have issues with their very first contrast. Um, nearly all of the people I'm seeing have also, are also hypermobile. They may not realize that they're hypermobile. Um, and that their fingers are more bendy than other people's or, or that their their thumbs are more more bendy until I kind of look at, look at them and go, oh, you know, you're, you're hypermobile. Interesting. People, yeah, people who've had saproxen or levoquin or another of the fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Okay. Whether or not they're hypermobile, if they've had that, that seems to be, I've definitely noticed um, that. I suspect people who've had Lyme disease, probably. Um, I haven't seen as much of that. Okay. And I suspect people who have an underlying autoimmune condition, um, so something like autoimmune thyroid disease or, you know, autoimmune arthritis or something like uh, systemic lupus erythematosus or something like that. Okay. Um, I suspect that those, you know, all of those sorts of things are Crohn's disease. Yeah, I think I suspect that those sorts of things are bigger risk factors. So it sounds like if you're if you're chronically sick, that those are the people who should really be careful about this. Yeah, yeah, and those are the people who are probably getting the most, the most, most MRIs. Yeah, yeah, that would be that is kind of an interesting factor there, whether it's an association or a causation. Yeah, yeah, and and I would I would expect people with MS probably would would have. So Molly, um, I'm wondering if you can share your story now about your MRI and what happened to you afterwards. It's very similar to Katrina's. Um, I received a macrocyclic. I think she received a linear. So I received a macrocyclic, four of them actually. I had a brain tumor. So within eight days of discovering the brain tumor, and then I was rushed into surgery. So I had the discovery pre-op and post-op scans. And in hindsight, I had reactions, like Katrina said, from probably the first one. But just coming out of a craniotomy, it's hard to tell, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, in that time frame afterwards, I never quite felt right. My eyes hurt. They were blurry. I think that was the first symptom. And even the physical therapist in the hospital had um, recommended that I see a low vision specialist. So they caught something right off the bat that I had not had previously. So yeah, I just never felt right after that. And I thought it was because I was detoxing all the anesthesia, steroids, yeah. pain medications, things that I never had before. Um, so that's what I chalked it up to is just in the black trauma of having the skull opened up. It just, <laughs> I don't know. It, And I imagine there's probably so many people out there that didn't have a obvious reaction that might just not feel good and not know why. Mm. Like I did until I had the fourth scan where um, within an hour I was outside gardening and all of a sudden I couldn't lift the shovel that I was using to dig up weeds. It was like the life force had been drained out of me at once. Like my body was lead. Like I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't hardly stand. Um, and from there it was heart arrhythmias, weakness, and all the symptoms Katrina mentioned, but they would, <laughs> they happen in unison or in different combinations. So it's not just one symptom at one time. It's a multitude of symptoms going on 
And for me, it eventually became symptoms going on 24 hours a day to where you have insomnia, but then you have these symptoms at the same time, so you don't ever get a break. And it's quite... Um, it's quite defeating. Wow, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Were were you bedbound? Yes, I was bedbound. In the beginning, I was not, but eventually, I couldn't drive. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't take care of myself, pretty much. You know, this is all new to me. It was that's why I made the website because when I first started, there was a lot of good information. It was just scattered, and it was technical, and I didn't know any of these words or <laughs> had heard of gadolinium. It made it really hard to navigate for me. And when you're sick too, you know, it make it adds a layer of difficulty of trying to figure this out when your doctor Totally. When your doctor hasn't figured it out, but you know something's wrong. Um, I think that's where the the nightmare of this begins because you know something's wrong, but all your tests are coming back normal in the beginning. Yeah, so her her website for anyone who's wondering is MRI die that's D Y E and buy like B Y E dot com. <laughs> And so no buy no buy <laughs> no it's just mridie.com. Oh, I thought you said buy. I, I announced it as no, buy. No, I spelled out die just in case people were uh, confused. I literally thought you said mridie bye dot com. I'm like, oh, mridie buy <laughs> like buy mridie. Okay. Uh, I wish. <laughs> so just mridie.com. Um, and it does have a lot of different resources. You know, when I was putting the show together, it it was my main uh, place that I went to learn and watch videos about it. So it's a great website. But anyway, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Go on. I know from there, I, I mean, I landed on a supposed expert in chelation and gadolinium. I um, employed him to guide a local doctor and uh his protocol for chelation, which turned out to be a disaster for me, um, it, using zinc DDPA. Okay. That's an intravenous one, correct? Correct. And supposedly people with macrocyclics have a harder time with chelation, and that's why they use zinc. There's also calcium DDPA, which is stronger. And in my case, it was just a really bad idea, and I, I didn't think... I could get any worse than I already was, and and the four rounds of IV chelation made it much much worse. Yeah, because that liberates all the gadolinium, right? It it brings it out of the tissues. I don't know what it does, but my body did not like it at all. I think it is. It's a it's a juggling act of wanting to get this stuff out, but it's also like you're dealing with an atomic bomb. It almost feels like you you know. You want it out, but it also feels very, very dangerous to handle. Um, yeah, so after that, I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can handle this isn't living. I don't want to drug myself into a stupor to be able to, you know, maybe get a break from this pain because that's not living. Um, but living in 24 hours of pain is quite difficult. And it's really hard when you want to take care of yourself. You know, have things you want to do. And you're dependent on other people, which, you know, you never know if if that's going to continue, if you're going to have support. Yeah, it was just fairly difficult. And I, I ended up finding a chelator that did work for me, and thank goodness. But, you know, I think I listened to one of your earlier podcasts, and you're not a fan, and I'm not either. But when you're losing the ability to walk... Or totally. you're having these intense symptoms like your heart or your lungs, it's difficult to breathe. You would like to increase your metabolism and support your body. But at the same time, I was just like, it, 
it feels like I'm dying and I want this to stop as soon as possible. And I don't know how long it will take with other interventions. But yeah, I ended up finding a chelator that's not necessarily on the market that I experimented with that worked for me. Um, well, what is that one called? Uh, the chemical abbreviation is NBMI. The drug name that it will eventually hopefully be sold under is Erminex. Hmm. But <laughs> it was available as a supplement and because it's one compound from cinnamon and the, another compound found in blueberries. So Interesting. Under definition, it should fall as a supplement, but there's some controversy uh, which made it have to go through um, the process of being approved as a drug. Yeah, I, I did say, I think in a previous podcast, that I wasn't a huge fan of chelators. But if you are like poisoned with a heavy metal, like you have lead poisoning or you have mercury poisoning or something like this, then you need that. You know, I mean, you need to get those metals out. But I think a lot of people kind of abuse chelators like EDTA, you know, they'll use oh, it for yeah. brain health and stuff like that. And and yeah, I think that yeah. can mess up your mineral balance. A hundred percent. If you're if you're healthy or you just have mild symptoms, I would say go the as gentle as you can and holistically as you can. But for the people that are wheelchair bound or have lost the ability to walk, um, there aren't a lot of options. Okay. So Katrina, I, you know, I watched a video that showed people trying infrared saunas and stem cell therapy. Are there any treatments out there that you have found that work? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a great question. Lucas. um, I actually have found that for, for me and actually probably for a few other people as well, really getting back to basis, basics with the diet and also doing a lot of lifestyle things um, is really helpful. So what I find, I'm now on a practically auto, autoimmune protocol diet. I have left dairy in, but everything else that's not allowed in the autoimmune protocol I've cut out. But I've basically cut out all the grains all the pulses and legumes, all nuts and seeds, all eggs, um, all seed spices, you know, caffeine and chocolate and stuff like that, um, and the nightshade vegetables. So that's things like tomatoes and potatoes and, and bell peppers and, you know, uh, chilies and stuff like that. And it turns out that I was actually having reactions to all of those after the gadolinium and taking all of those out seems to have helped a lot, even with things like the leg swelling and <laughs> sleep and everything. I brought in quite a few um, medicinal foods, like a, a range of medicinal mushrooms and some medicinal herbs or, or vegetables that have kind of uh, quite medicinal properties like go to cola. Um, and I use a range of supplements, so things like D-ribose and PQQ um, and zinc and magnesium and, um, you know, a, a good B vitamin, um, vitamin D3 and vitamin K2. So, so quite a lot of quite a lot of supplements in there and quite a lot of medicinal foods. Did you ever do chelation like Molly? Not actually an option for me where I live. So, okay. um, yeah, so I'm in Belfast in Northern Ireland in the UK and we don't have a toxicology service here. We, there is one in, well, there's a couple of places in England that have a toxicology service. So, yeah. So I, I saw Chuck Norris's wife, uh, I think, had this too. And she was doing all kinds of crazy things. I mean, she was doing like acupuncture and, and infrared saunas and stem cells. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, that's out of the budget for most people. But either one of you guys can yeah. answer this. Are there any treatments like that that work? So, I mean, we do know that sweating actually does eliminate quite a lot of toxins, not just gadolinium, but a lot of the other, um, you know, other heavy metals, but also 
some of these things like phthalates and um, and plasticizers and some of the, a lot of the other things that we're exposed to, pesticides and all sorts. So I think definitely get reducing your toxic load probably is quite important. I see that there are quite a lot of people doing niacin saunas where, where they would take ah, um, the, the flush niacin. The Scientology approach. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, well, do you know, I think there probably is something to it. Yeah, um, yeah, I've done know, it. There's... Uh, yeah, have you? Yeah, yeah. How'd you find it? They're nice. They, they make you feel really good. Yeah. I mean, just a nice and flush on its own makes most people feel pretty good after they get over the discomfort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the prickling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so quite a lot of people, and a lot of people do seem to be getting some at least short term symptomatic relief from that. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy, that's something that some people are trying. And again, some of the results are, are really good. I, you know, I don't think there seems to be anything that is, um, that works for absolutely everyone. So every, you know, some people do get some side effects for, from all of these things. Um, so which makes makes it hard because when you're already feeling about as low as you want to go, you don't really want to dip any lower, do you, Molly? No. no. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so Molly, I'll, other than that one uh, chelator that you used, Molly, is there any other treatments that you found have potential? I'm do- using a lot of other things as well, and trying to just correct nutritional deficiencies um, in the process of using that chelator. I knew my molybdenum had been low, and this chelator is sulfur-based, and molybdenum is crucial for sulfur. So for the last month or two, I started feeling really bad again and then pieced it together. So correcting any kind of deficiency, um, vitamin D, magnesium, those are two that I'm usually typically low on, so I... I take all the fat solubles. Um. Yeah, I I imagine if you were low in molybdenum, I know that's kind of crucial to your uh, aldehyde hydrogenase system. So alcohol was probably out of the picture for both of you guys. I'm guessing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I would I would have trouble with alcohol beforehand and um, sulfa drugs, which were. So I just didn't take the molybdenum as seriously. Now I know how critical it is um, if you have any of those type of symptoms during or pre. And it, you know, it supposedly helps with the glutathione levels, which is important for detoxing as well. So if you um, have one of these MRIs, you know, with these agents and you suspect you might be harmed, uh, either, either one of you, what are your first steps that you should do? I would say find out what you are given, then contact in the U.S. Contact the FDA, report it to their to the fairs. I think I believe the MedWatch. Report your reaction to the FDA. I would say find out what you got and report your reaction to the FDA. Those would be the first two steps. But in the U.S., it's not. They don't have to record the dose or the brand that you were given by law. Like I said, I think most places do record that information, but if you have trouble finding out, that's probably why. Katrina, what what do you think first steps should be? Yeah, I mean, I think those are great. Um, I think a lot of people probably want to feel better. So, so things that you can do to feel better. Um, so I, I would probably get my doctor to run a celiac screen and some autoimmune um, blood work. Um, but if your celiac screen comes back negative, I would still actually do some dietary eliminations. Um, so I know that a lot of people struggle with doing an autoimmune protocol, but that's actually, I think it's really worth trying to do that diet. So where you eliminate a lot of things and also focus a lot on the most nutrient dense foods 
um, particularly things like the liver and the organ meats and the bone broths and heart and stuff like that. And uh, yes, things supplements that I find helpful, probably things like alpha lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine, but you should probably work with a practitioner okay. on all of these sorts of things. Um, with the anxiety being so horrible, I, I really do think that things like mindfulness meditation and gratitude and trying to reduce your stress are really important and getting help, asking people for help um, and helping you to just do just do normal things and, and not feeling bad about asking people for help um, either. I, th- I think it's really important that you, you sort of like um, maintain your contact with other people because a lot of, a lot of you know, something that a lot of people do as well is kind of isolate themselves when they feel sick. It's a very normal response. And it's probably, a, you know, it's probably a kind of Definitely. A, yeah, a survival tactic to lurk in the back of your cave and yeah. <laughs> not come out. <laughs> Having conversations about it can be very difficult. So if you're finding that that the people that you that care about you and that you care about um, don't really understand the the whole gadolinium thing, and you're, you're starting to feel a bit gaslighted, which happens to a lot of people, I would maybe would wouldn't try those sorts of topics that that can be very difficult or i would or i get them to to read up on it um and certainly they can read my book and hopefully that would make them a lot more clear or read molly's website um or my website um or the gadolinium website just to try and find out more about it because they're you know it's it's very difficult if you're if the people that should be supporting you don't believe that you're what you're going through and that happens uh a distressing amount of the time okay yeah and and yeah just doing trying to do things like you know the epsom salts baths or the or saunas or whatever that that they can and staying hydrated and adding lots of salt and yeah all that sort of thing so before we wrap up i mean is there anything that we didn't cover on gandolinium that we should kind of go back and go over we did cover a lot haven't yeah we? we did it's nothing that's really yeah nothing that's nothing that's jumping to yeah well Everything but conflicts of interest, which I think that would take a whole show. Oh, we did not talk about conflicts of interest. I actually have that question written down and I skipped over it. Okay, real quick, in a couple minutes, you know, what what is the conflict of interest going on right now? Because there is a supposed conflict of interest kind of downplaying the risk with these contrast agents. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so, um, so, I suppose a lot of the, almost all of the research on these contrast agents is um, produced by the companies that manufacture and sell, make a profit from from them. So that's you know companies like um, Bayer and um, Braco and Gerber and, and various other ones. When you look at these published research papers, um, it's probably best to look at these more as paid advertising huh. because the because the companies they'll they'll sort of design trials in such a way that they minimise the likelihood of actually identifying um, side effects. So, for example, a lot of the trials, the you know, looking at side effects, a lot of the, the trials only follow people up for about 25 minutes to 48 hours to look at side effects. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, there, there isn't... There isn't really there isn't really research looking at people more for more than about forty eight hours. And there's even things like whenever I was looking up some of the original research, um, looking at brain toxicity. You know, the the group of patients that they would have used would have been patients probably a bit like Molly patients who, with brain tumors, um, and they selected you know, like a smallish sized group of people. But whenever they were following them up. They're, they're much worsened symptoms. They couldn't tell if that was because because they had brain tumors and, and their symptoms were progressing or because 
they had surgery and that was making their symptoms worse or because they were getting radiotherapy and that was making their symptoms worse or because they're getting chemotherapy or other drugs or anesthetics. Yeah, so many different factors. So many different factors, but they're, you know, and they highlighted all of these things, but their conclusions were, um, we find that it's safe when the conclusion should have been, in retrospect, this wasn't the right study design to address this problem. Um, you'd need to do this. So, so there are all, all sorts of these things. And then when you look at, at regulating agencies like the FDA, there are, you know, some some people working with the FDA go on then to work for the companies or to become CEOs, possibly, yeah, of, of of the of the pharmaceutical yes. companies. So, yeah. So, it's, is there is there any independent research going on right now? Uh, there may be bits and pieces, but again, well, Dr. Brent Wagner. Um, mm-hmm is doing quite a bit of independent research in his university. So probably some of the independent research is from universities. But what you what you also find is that sometimes when people have wanted to do research on things like IV chelation, their funding has been pulled. Um, and that's happened once or twice as well. So again, I think that comes under conflict of interest type things because, you know, a lot of these big pharmaceutical companies and big food actually provide a lot of funding for universities. So even though you'd think that universities and even government agencies would be very independent, it's, you know, you can't really bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Um, and, and these corporations have, have, you know, so much, you know, if they're paying millions out, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult to sort of go, oh, we're going to criticize, you know, going to take something that is going to, you know, affect your bottom line. So and and then as well, when it comes to to publishing studies in peer-reviewed journals, your peers are probably going to be the people who are are making money from the contrast agents. So that can um, that can certainly color whether your study is is published in one of these big journals at all. Yeah. Okay, Molly. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah. Well, one of the most striking things I have seen recently is um, there was a study out of University of Boston, uh, and they had looked at brains from their CTE registry and found gadolinium in the frontal cortex. And on the radiology journal's website, at the beginning of that paper, they had in red letters see this editorial by so-and-so who is a who's paid by all four contrast makers at the very beginning of that paper before you ever got to the meat oh, of man. the Boston University paper. So the journal is, you know, obviously <laughs> doing the bidding for somebody there. It was very interesting to see that. Wow. So, yeah, let's wrap this up. Um, Molly, why don't you tell us uh, about kind of what you do, how people can reach you if they have any questions and what kind of things you're working on now? I just squawk about gadolinium. I'm not an expert. I'm just a patient. So my website's there to help people get started, whether they're a patient or they're trying to help their friends or family members understand what they're going through. Um, And right now I'm just in the beginning stages of starting my life over. So they can contact me through the website. But again, I'm not an expert. I'm just a patient. So it probably best to contact somebody like Katrina if they have more questions. Okay. Katrina, same, same to you. What are you uh, working on and, and what do you do and how can people contact you? Um, sure. So I am now a nutritional lifestyle coach and <laughs> having done a pivot from um, being a consultant pediatrician working in, in the North, in the national health service in the UK for about 
a decade and a half. Um, so now I help people to um, optimize their health using um, diet and supplements and lifestyle um, with a particular focus on people with gadolinium toxicity from MRI contrasts. But also, I'm also kind of helping to support people with burnout because that was that was really what caused the whole thing. Um, and my whole decompensation, I completely burned out. So I've written a book called um, Contrast, More Than Meets the Eye, um, demystify, demystifying the devastating damage due to gadolinium contrast and some natural steps you can take to rever- reverse those dreadful effects using diet and lifestyle. So that's available as an ebook now. Um, you can get it from all the all the big ebook stores, um, and it is. I'm working on a paperback um, edition to come out in the summer. After um, at the moment, I'm actually working on creating a kind of a, a mastermind, a group coaching course for for people with burnout, professionals um, who are suffering from exhaustion, from burnout called Burnout Antidote. So after I've got that done, then I'll get back to creating the contrast more than meets the eye on paperback and releasing that. So yeah, if, if people do want to, if they are confused or they'd like some help or support making dietary and lifestyle changes that will help them with uh, with their gadolinium symptoms, yeah, give me a shout. I'm at thefoodphoenix.co.uk. Okay, so thank you so much for both of you guys uh, coming on. I, I really appreciate it. This is such a so it's a crazy subject, you know, that this is going on out there. So, uh, but it sounds like it's a par for the course for a lot of things in the pharma world. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Lucas. Been lovely chatting to you. It's good to meet you. <laughs> lovely. Yeah, it's lovely to see you too, Molly. <laughs> nice to put a face to the... Yeah, face to the... All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you liked the interview with these two wonderful ladies. Uh, one quick correction. Molly wrote to tell me that the paper she mentioned was actually about the cerebral cortex and not the frontal cortex. Uh, what really got me in this interview was actually Molly's story. I have so much compassion for what she went through and just the absolute debilitation she experienced after multiple MRIs uh, with this gadolinium stuff. That kind of experience can either break you or make you stronger. And it sounds like Molly is one tough cookie. Uh, Dr. Katrina's information was really great as well. I will have all her links as well as Molly's website in the show notes. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone. The website is quackspodcast.com. If you feel like helping us out, you can use our Amazon banner on the front page to shop on Amazon. Uh, You can also send us an email at quackspodcast at gmail.com with any questions. See you next week. Be well.